Welcome to episode 220 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Dr. Tracy Colmus. Tracy and I met via Twitter, where I follow her and hear updates from her life and from her experience in the military. And when we started this interview, I was surprised to find out that she went first to the Naval Academy because it happened to be the week of the Army-Navy game when we did the recording and she kept talking about sinking Navy, go Army. And so when she said she went to the Naval Academy, I was really confused. So that's how the story begins and then somehow she ends up in the Army and we talked about her experience in the Army and what it was like and why she left the Army to be a military spouse and how she ended up doing the work she's doing today. We also talked about losing her husband in an accident while they were at an embassy and what it was like to deal with that loss and how she and her kids continue on today and how to remember his legacy. So it's a really good interview and I'm so excited to share her story with you today. Welcome to the show, Tracy. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm happy to be here, too. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So I actually joined the military back in the 80s when women were really just getting started at the service academies and um, doing more and more in the different services. And I wasn't really thinking about joining the military. And then I got a flyer to go to the Naval Academy Summer Seminar. And I went with one of my friends from high school and I was really quite hooked. And it really reflected around all of the things that I wanted to do. It seemed that in the military, you could get an education, you could see the world, you know, you you could do work that really had a purpose and be called uh, to do something really quite meaningful. So it was really attractive to me. And again, as a Puerto Rican girl applying to the Naval Academy in the 90s, I received my appointment in September of my senior year of high school. So it was really, it all went incredibly, you know, flash to bang. And then I was sort of on, on my way from there. So what year was it when you started at the Naval Academy? Uh, 1986, the summer of 1986. So then you graduated in 1990, like right before? No, I, I didn't graduate. No, I stayed for a little under two years. It was not a great time to be a young woman at the Naval Academy. Uh, We didn't have the language then that we have now uh, that really strives to protect girls and young women in the services in general. Those programs didn't exist. And so it was was not a pleasant experience back in the mid-80s. But as I was leaving, there was an Army Lieutenant Colonel who was one of the English professors. And he said to me, pulled me aside and he said, women are doing the things that you want to do, why don't you do Army ROTC? And I did, and I graduated from Davidson in 1991 on an Army ROTC scholarship. So, and that's really sort of how I ended up, you know, getting into into the Army. It wasn't, uh, so many of these things in our lives seem like they happen by chance. And I think that that was really a chance encounter that worked out brilliantly. Yeah, I was confused. I was like, Navy, that doesn't make sense. No, and so I know it's, uh, I think that this will air much later, but it is Army-Navy week that we're filming. And when I converted to being in the Army and an Army fan, it was like with every fiber 
of my being. Um, so there, there's definitely that. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like to be at the Naval Academy and then what it was like to be in ROTC. Was it better for women to be in ROTC or did you still, I'm sure you still face challenges. There were lots of challenges in those days, mostly I think because it was a numbers game, you know, where, where the numbers of women, we weren't quite up to the 17, 18% of the active duty force that are women. So I was the only woman or girl in my uh, army ROTC cohort, but I was with such a great group of, of men and we're friends until this day. We still do the army 10 miler. We get together when we can. There was a point a few years ago where all of us were working in the Pentagon and we would meet for lunch every once in a while. And so we were, we were just incredibly close, but yes, it, there were, there were always challenges. I think when the numbers game was, was quite small. Yeah, I love hearing stories of women getting into a group with, you know, primarily men and having that support network. And so many of them say that they're still connected with those men that they were connected with and those either in ROTC or their first few years of being in the military. And so those stories are just so encouraging and I love hearing them. So that's really cool. Now it was really cool, and I've never been fast. I don't, I don't know that we've ever been like in the same room at the same time. But you know, I'm little. You know, I've, I've got this hourglass thing going on, and so I've never been a fast runner. And I'm quite convinced that when I die, it'll be my ROTC crew that are sort of cheering me across the finish line uh, when I get to the other side, because that's they, they 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 did it when we were in school together. They do it now with the Army Ten Miler. I'm always last, uh, but we win. We win the uh, the prize. Like where we one one year they got my gender wrong and we placed first in the men's group. And I was like, oh, that's me, right? I'm part of the men's group that that I'm still running after all these years. And I think it's because they need a woman to to join them in the endeavor. So they've had to like cheer me to the finish line every time. But it, it's they're a nice group of men. That's so great to hear. The other thing I would add about being at the being a woman at the Naval Academy in the 80s is that the women don't discriminate against one another for inclusion in events. So I was in the class of 90. So the women in the class of 90, they do retreats and they do reunions and they do they have a Facebook group. And the women who graduated include the women who didn't graduate. And I, and, I, I, it beca- and I think part of that is it was just so horrible for, for all of us. And, and so I'm really thankful to them. Yeah, that's really cool that you can stay connected with your classmates that you started with. And even though you didn't graduate, they still have a bond with you of going through that experience and it being so challenging. So that's really cool to hear. Even with your army love, you can still hang out with Navy people. You know, beat army week's always a little, you know, dodgy for them uh, with me. But they they accept the fact that this was like a full-on conversion experience. I love it. That's so funny. Yeah. So when you graduated, what was your career field in the army? Oh, it's so funny. I was air defense artillery. And it was the sort of thing that when the, the morning that they sort of told us, what our branches would be in the army. And it was air defense artillery. Both my instructor and I were like, do girls do that? You know, was this something that women did? And yes, actually, 
women did air defense artillery back in the early 90s and even I think in the, in the 80s. So it was a great opportunity. It wasn't my first choice. It was only on my list because I didn't want to be chemical core for whatever reason, looking back, you know, I've met wonderful officers and had friends who were chemical core officers, but I, I didn't want that for myself. So it was, so the only reason ADA made the list, I thought I would do something, I don't know, softer. And instead I was a combat arms officer and platoon leader and that sort of thing. And that was really very exciting. So it turned out to be, you know, quite brilliant. Uh, and just a wonderful opportunity to, to lead and to serve and to learn. Very different from what it would have been if it would have been something, I think, more traditionally, like an area where women, there were more women that served. Yeah. And I'm always fascinated by the history of women in the military because there's so much that's unknown. And with combat exclusion, people think that excluded women from combat. But, you know, the war in 2000, you know, after September 11th, there was no front line. So women were in combat just doing their regular jobs. And then like even your experience in a role that you're like, can I even do that? I thought <laughs> that was off limits for me. Yeah. And I did, I did have a deployment. I finished the basic course and I went to my first battalion Patriot. I was a Patriot missile officer. And when I went to my first battalion, the day I showed up, they're like, yeah, we're deploying to Saudi Arabia. And so I did get to do, to do an operational deployment and, you know, lead my platoon in, in a war zone. Um, and so it was quite, you know, exciting and heady stuff when you're you know, 22, 23. Yeah. Was that something that you expected to happen or was that like, wait, what? I <laughs> I wasn't expecting that when I arrived at my first assignment or I, I don't think I was, I don't think I was really aware that that was something I'd, I'd have the opportunity to do or be expected to do. And it was, it was fine. Were you uh, one of the women on that deployment? Absolutely. Just even in my, in the platoon that I led, there was uh, one or two uh, enlisted women. Uh, there was one other female officer in the company with which, which I deployed and she ended up not staying for the full deployment. So it, yeah, it was me. Me and the guys, and of course, being in Saudi Arabia as an officer is complex um, because as a woman, I couldn't sit in the front seat of the bus. I couldn't drive the car. I, I wasn't able to operate at my full function like the other lieutenants who could lead, not just when they were within the confines of a secure location, they could lead sort of everywhere. And so it was, um, it was strange. Yeah. Was that something that was challenging to deal with or was it just I feel like sometimes now we think about things a lot more than we did then and we just like no I think I was I was sort of keenly aware that it was inconvenient that some guy had to drive me around and it, it could be anyone it's that I couldn't drive that I was really you know I'm I'm an independent American woman I'm used to going where I need to go by myself, or if I'm, if I'm in, if I'm the bus commander, you know, that I should be able to sit in the front of the bus and not have someone come on the bus and say, no, you can't sit there. You need to sit, you know, in the back. So it was really, even then I just thought it was, I, I almost wonder if I would be more accepting now and just be like, oh, culturally we have to accept these cultural difference as opposed, differences, as opposed to, you know, in the nineties, I was just like, I said, wow, I can't do my job fully because of my gender. It was very strange. It was a weird spot to be in. 
Yeah, for sure. It's interesting how like our perspective shifts had changed. Like we are more culturally aware. So that's such a fascinating experience. And I haven't had a lot of people talk about that type of experience. So, Well, I think it was definitely very different from OAF and OIF, which I think probably most of the people you're talking to, their deployments would have been, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later and very different from, from what I did. Yeah, a lot of them are from like past 2001. Uh, but but since there's over 200 episodes, I, I get some of you from like the 80s and, and earlier. And it's always fascinating to hear your guys' story because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the role of just the military in general between 91 when the end of the Gulf War happened and 2001 and like all the different operations and all the different things that the military was doing that were out of the public you know if you weren't in the military or connected to someone in the military I felt like I mean I didn't even know the military really existed until 2001 because I was in high school and then I was like oh you mean we like have people ready to respond I didn't even know that was a thing because it just wasn't part of my life experience it's really funny to think about how long was your deployment it was only like six or seven months it was it was short and then when you got home from your deployment what were you doing home station Uh, what patriot missiles units were doing in those days is we did a lot of training and we were still training to sort of the soviet you know iron curtain model in those days that it was it was very sort of east-west focused and we would go to the missile site because we had our missiles set up and we would train as a fire control officer. You know, we, we would train to set the equipment up to prepare to fight um, the air battle and then to actually, you know, they'd have simulations that they'd sort of plug in and fight, fight the air battle that way. So we would go, we would go to the field or we'd be at the, at the missile site a lot at the time. Um, And I moved, actually, I followed my husband, so, so my military career is actually very short, considering that I still work for the Department of Defense today. But it's I moved to Germany as a first lieutenant to accompany my husband. And then I actually stopped working when I had my first child. But it gave me the experience of sort of doing exercises in garrison in the States, doing joint exercises. I did a JADO jazz and I got to fly on AWACS in those days, which was a lot of, you know, I would see my, you know, my, my unit, they would, we, we'd see each other on video teleconference and they'd be like out in the desert. They'd all look like exhausted and dirty. And I'd of course been staying on the strip in Las Vegas with the AWACS crew. We'd go up and fly, we'd come down and we'd debrief. And so it was a lot of fun, actually. It was a very cool opportunity and just a nice way to see more of what was going on outside of just, you know, the the one path that you're trained on. Uh, And then, of course, in Germany, it was more of the same with the go to the field and train and get get the, the unit was getting inspected and that sort of thing when I was there. Yeah, it sounds like it was short, but like very impactful on the rest of your life because of just the experiences that you got to have and the different opportunities that you got to experience, which just sounds so fascinating and so cool. I would say that um, the one thing that I did that actually impacted me sort of for the rest of my life, when I got to Germany, I worked with like four women who were my age and we were all married and everybody wanted to have a baby. 
right? Which, which, which isn't unusual. It wasn't unusual to be 23, 24, 25 and married and have a baby in the early nineties. That was not, you know, it's, it's now people be, Oh, you're so young. No, then it was, it was fine. And everyone was afraid of the battalion commander. They were afraid to get pregnant, that it would ruin their careers. Whereas I, because I hadn't only been there, I was totally having a baby, right? When I arrived there, I knew that my husband and I were trying to have a baby. And so I went first. And so I had this experience of working for a boss and bosses in an environment where that was not appreciated, understood, or thought to be a really good idea or a good use of of time and energy. So it, it was really a wake up call to have you know, someone who was married and had children, this battalion commander, look at the profile. When I finally managed, you know, to get to get pregnant after, you know, months of disappointment and trying to get this profile that said, you know, the thing, you, you can't take the PT test, you shouldn't pump gasoline into like the vehicles or whatever it said. One of the items was you're not supposed to wear MOP4, so the full protective gear. And I remember that the battalion commander who had not really dealt with pregnant officers before, lots of pregnant soldiers, lots of them. And we all sort of became friends and I learned from their experience. But he looked at my profile and he's like, you know, we have a big inspection. We have a NATO inspection coming up soon. And you're part of that. He's like, don't you think you could just wear the mock gear for the NATO inspection? And I was like, even then I said, you know, I've got one shot at having a healthy baby. And I think I need to listen to the advice of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists because I don't want to do this wrong for the rest of my life and for the rest of my baby's life. And it didn't go over well with him. And I, because I, I think he wasn't expecting a little pushback. And I know that sort of as I became larger and began to show, and we were going through this you know, really rigorous field, stay awake for 72 hours inspection process that that our foreign national counterparts, who I think were like German and Dutch in those days, who came for the inspection, were, were kind of shocked that there was this pregnant lady out there up at one and two o'clock in the morning briefing them on, you know, sort of the airways in the, in the sky, like, like a weather reporter or something like that, or sitting in the van fighting the tactical air battle. So it was, um, it was really, it was strange. It was a strange turn of events uh, to be pregnant in a place where people were really afraid to start their families, despite the fact that they wanted to. And I, I have carried that into my leadership as I try to create environments that um, support young women, actually, and young men and young families that people should, you know, exercise and live the full life of the family while doing whatever their job is. Yeah, that's really powerful. And it's interesting, like how different your experience was than mine when I was pregnant in the military where, you know, I was in, I got pregnant in 2013, and I guess 2012. And then it was just like, okay, check, check, check. And I just kept doing my job. And, you know, no one really thought anything about it. I I also got out of the military. So I put in my paperwork to get out, but there wasn't any like discrimination. And there wasn't any push to do anything that wasn't on my profile. I was actually working out and they were like, shouldn't you just sit down? I was like, no, I can work out and be (laughs) pregnant. 
No, I, I definitely think that that that's been like we've we've become better. I think we've become better at sort of enabling people that, that this is just something that we're going to do, and then we're we're going to get back to it rather than really making it hard for women to be pregnant. I think we've certainly made it softer uh, or more more pregnancy friendly. I guess would be yeah. And they even have changed the maternity leave and the time between having a baby and deploying. And that was after I left the military. And that was one of the big factors on why I left because I knew six months after I was likely going to deploy. And I was like, I, I just don't know if I can do it. And if I can't do it, I shouldn't be in the military. And so. And, and, and what, I, what I would say is when I deployed, I deployed with one of my best second lieutenant friends, right? Because the women hang out and she was married and she'd been pregnant and she'd had a baby and she nursed that baby and she handed it to her husband and she turned around and she got on the plane and left for like six, seven months. And when we were gone, the women who were mothers, I saw how they really struggled and I didn't want that for myself. But I think my husband and I actually thought that we'd sort of get a nanny. Like, I think we thought we could get a nanny and that would, we'd be able to manage everything. And sort of as I got bigger, my husband one day said, shouldn't one of us maybe look after the baby, like really prioritize looking after the baby. And of course, well, it should have been me because I, I was the one who grew up playing with dolls and really loved babies a lot. So it was me. But it sounds like it was a conversation of like one of us, not shouldn't you get out of the military? It was, it was one of us should do this. And, and I think, you know, he probably went into it with, it's one of us and it should probably be you. But um, I think he wanted to make it seem like we were having more of a conversation than maybe we were having. So, and, and it, it worked out. I, I got out a month before my oldest son was born and that seemed to work out really well. Hard though, as you know, to transition from being the active duty service member to being a stay-at-home mom. And I didn't bring a lot of housewifery skills to the job. I don't, I didn't sew, and everybody used to sew curtains in those days. I, th I think I think we do a lot less with window dressings in you know the tooth in this new millennium than we did in the previous. It's you would move and everyone would sew curtains. I didn't sew. I didn't cook. My husband did all the cooking. I, I like. I'm very happy to eat Cheerios three times a day. Right. I'm not a gourmand. I just have the taste buds of the toddler. I didn't cook, so it was really like a real learning experience. And uh, I, I cook. I, I assure you, uh, twenty some odd years later, I'm a great everyday cook, and I, I love to make. Uh, fancy desserts, but it, it was it was a hard transition for me because I'd been really laser focused on becoming an officer, and then there was like no, it was like stepping off, and there was really nothing. So, well, I guess nothing but a good time. Uh, we we were in Germany and lived on post and had a great community around us. So, but it was it was I was kind of aimless career wise for a while. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I remember when I left the military and I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. And like, my life's going to be so easy. And then I was like, wait, this is not great. And I don't know who I am. And I lost this like whole part of who I was. And I didn't expect that part of transition. So like, it was hard to become a mom. And then it was also hard to deal with the loss of leaving the military and not realizing exactly what I had given up to become a stay-at-home mom, which I love and I'm glad that I did. But at the time it was really hard. 
Yeah, well, I stayed home for like 10 years. I don't know that everyone knows that, uh, but I, I stayed home really for a, for a long time. And I had three babies in ra- really rapid succession, but we were sort of, we went through a phase where with my husband's career, we moved like every six months to 18 months for about five or six years. But probably like you, I managed to do really meaningful volunteer work in my community and we traveled a lot and we, we lived in like Pakistan. Uh, I learned a f- couple foreign languages. I got my master's and my PhD and did a fellowship sort of all before coming back to full-time employment. So I'm glad that these things happened. Point In those days, the maternity leave, maybe for you also, it was six weeks. And there was a point when I was like nursing my first son uh, when he was maybe 10 or 11 weeks old. And I remember sitting there and thinking, if I could go back to work, it would probably be okay now because I felt that things were really well organized. And of course, in those days, well, you couldn't, right? There was, there was no turning around and going back to what I'd had and having, you know, uh, there just wasn't. But it's okay because given the way that things turned out globally, the one thing I can say is it never would have been a good day for me to be deployed or in the field once we had kids. It, it was, my husband was sort of, gone all the time, right? Like many other people's uh, families, he was deployed in the field, training for that next deployment at a short course for school, just sort of all the time. So it was, uh, I think it was the right call for us. Yeah. I mean, dual military life is hard without kids and then you add kids and it's even more complicated. And then you add September 11th and, you know, being at war constantly makes it even more complicated. So, and there were so many missions and things going on before September 11th even happened. So that makes a lot of sense. Do you want to talk about your husband dying? I'm fine talking about Randy. I really try to keep his, his memory. He was really sort of a larger than life figure. He did like, he was just amazing. And he brought like the sunshine to every room. So I've, I've missed that. Um, he was a few years older than I am. And so when I met him, he was already like promotable to captain. And he was with the 82nd. He was quite like heroic and just a marvelous person. And so he was an armor officer, but then he became a foreign area officer. So he was a South Asian FAO. And the FAO community is like wickedly tight. They're incredibly uh, close. Like his mentees still who are now like retired colonels still reach out and let me know where, where, where they are and what they're up to and ask about the boys and how we're all doing. He died when we were serving at the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta in a road traffic crash. So it's uh, due to sort of faulty lighting on new construction. It's, it's something that we, I don't think would ever happen in the States because we're so rules-based and safety focused. Um, So he died while we were in Jakarta and he was buried uh, in Arlington. Goodness, today's like the 9th of December. uh, So I think it was almost exactly 11 years ago that he had, he he died in August. And then I think he sat on ice in Korea or something terrible like that for several months awaiting a burial at Arlington. And so the boys and I flew back and we're here for that with his friends and his, uh, the rest of his family. So, and he, uh, he had deployed so many times that it seems uh, a bit trite that he died in a road traffic crash. But I, I think there, there is no good way to die when you're young. 
but so that that's what happened. And we became, uh, the boys and I became a gold star family in his absence. And the blessing is that when I was asked what I needed when he died, as people, what do you need? What I needed was to stay in that house in Jakarta so that the boys could finish school that year. And so Robert could get into West Point, the big one. And we were, we were allowed to sort of stay in Indonesia and uh, finish, you know, sort of stabilize and finish the year. I didn't have a plan of what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go on the planet uh, until May. And so from August until May, I was like really trying to think about what the next steps would be uh, for us without him. And uh, we ended up coming back to Washington. Uh, I didn't have a job. I just knew that he was buried at Arlington and I wanted to be close enough to finish a cup of coffee on his grave in section 60, which I do from time to time. Yeah. I follow you on Twitter. So I knew that he died, but I didn't know the story of how he died. And I love that the military worked with you and was able to support you as a family so that your kids could finish school so your son could go to West Point and that you didn't have to make all the decisions like right as it happened, especially like, you know, if he was deployed and he died, that would be very tragic, but it also wouldn't be as unexpected. You were like, we're in a safe place, you know, relatively safe. And then, yeah, we were, you know, we were, we were, he, and he had been deployed. Like the boys and I stayed an extra year in Bangladesh sponsored by the NGO for, I worked for an international research organization the whole time we were in Bangladesh and they sponsored my visa. They sponsored the boys staying in school. They, they paid me enough to rent. Yeah. I had to move out of the attache house, but you know, I had a nice, it was a soft landing and sort of everyone was looking out for, for the boys and I, the year he was deployed and he did a split half pack year. So he was in Pakistan for the first half of the year. He was in Afghanistan for the second half of the year. And then, you know, we reunited as a family in uh, Jakarta in 2010. And we, we had like a year together, a lovely year together. And then, so his death was really, and we were both traveling really hard in those days. And we didn't, we didn't have good sleep hygiene. And so he was jet lagged. I, we were just sort of living a very fast life. But so it was really unexpected because we were laser focused on the fact that he was going to leave in several months and go to the next job, which was going to be a, a big job, like in another country. And the boys and I would join him after school, got out again, just to, to let my oldest have that wonderful senior year of high school. So it was, so it was nice that the wheels worked in a way for us to stay. I'm, I'm always very thankful for that opportunity. Yeah. Wow. It's just so powerful. And Thank you for being willing to share because I know that you said you like to keep his memory alive and that's why you share on social media. And, and so I, I think it's just really powerful. Thank well, you. he was really just an amazing human. I don't think that I had to be particularly witty or clever because I just would show up with him and it was like being with the homecoming king, you know, for 20 years. So it was, uh, I just, I got to be my average self, but I was always accompanied by like this, this star. So it was nice. I miss him. He was good. And he made beautiful babies with me. So. Yeah. And there, and one of them went to West Point. Two, two of them went to West Point. 
and graduated from West Point now. Yeah, I have a 2016 and a 2021. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, there's another one in the middle who um, is civilian all the way, had enough moving for a lifetime. He's really quite firm on that. I remember you sharing stuff on Twitter, but it all gets jumbled on the dates and the it does, doesn't it? And the, the years go by and then we're like, oh, was that last year or was that three years ago? Especially with, with Twitter, with the sort of the light level of acquaintance that we all sort of are with each other in the, in the military uh, Twitter community. Yeah. So is there anything else from either your time in the military or up till today that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? Oh, I feel I feel badly because this makes this seem like a really boring um, thing. I would say that I love that I've been able to come back to the Department of, of Defense, and um, and people can Google where I work if they don't know. I didn't get permission um, from the place that I work to do this talk because we're not really disseminating any sort of scientific results. So I in no way represent any agency or institution, you know, or the DOD, these are just like, it's just me talking. Uh, so no one else is accountable uh, for any of this. But it's it was nice to come back to DC, uh, really without a job and without a plan. And I, I was applying to jobs, like respectable global health faculty positions or positions with um, international agencies in the DC area, which are plentiful. And I ended up, somebody sent me a position with the Marine Corps as a special assistant to the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, a real public health advocacy and an, an advisory role. And with the words, wouldn't this be fun? And that's how I ended up back uh, in the Department of, of Defense, because I really wasn't working with the DOD or with any agency when I was overseas. I mean, I worked for an, a true international agency, although I was the wife of the defense attache. So I was still, all these years, I was adjacent to the military as a spouse. I graduated from the joint military attache spouses class and that, that sort of thing. Um, my vol- a lot of my volunteer work was in the DOD. And so I ended up then coming back to the DOD and working for the Marine Corps with this great earring view from the Pentagon. And I, I traveled to, to bases and installations to learn about the military health system because I didn't know a lot about it and how it worked or about TRICARE and how TRICARE worked. But it was I was a system scientist. It was quite relevant. Like I was like, oh, I get this. And I even got to go to Afghanistan and to Italy and to Germany and learn and vi- to visit institutions and meet with different levels of healthcare workers and what their challenges were. And it, that was, it was a fantastic learning opportunity. But all the while, I would go to meetings on behalf of the Marine Corps and, and say to people, you know, you think this is true, but you haven't done the research to demonstrate this thing that you want to believe, but you could, right? Like everything you need, the data exists. You just haven't analyzed it. And so that's where the job that I'm in now really came from was because I sort of walked around telling people that they, people who were still working with us, that they weren't doing enough of what I did <laughs> to, uh, to make policy and programmatic decisions. And so that's really where I've ended up now. And it definitely has its charms and it has its struggles. And if you want to learn more and hear more about what Tracy's, um, I follow her on Twitter. And so I know 
in general what she's talking about because you're always posting like reports and papers and different things that you're working on and so you can find out more on twitter or or just google or whatever you want to do but her link to, uh, to twitter is in the show notes so that's easy to find so i always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to a young woman considering joining the military Goodness, besides lock your door at night, no matter where you are on the planet and sleep with scissors next to your bed, I'm trying to think. It, it is uh, pursue your, your bliss, right? You want to join the military and see the world and get all the benefits, do it. You know, learn learn to lead and serve. It's it's a life-changing uh, opportunity. They, they should do it. And to not be afraid of taking on a job that they didn't think they could do. Like, I think people join and they think they want to be maybe a surgical tech, or they want to do something in logistics rather than being in field artillery or being in like air defense artillery or armor or the infantry. Don't be afraid to do those things because, well, one, it's not forever. Even even within the service, you can change easily at different points. It's be open to these experiences and opportunities. I think that there's there's a lot to, to do. And I just had, it was branch night at West Point last week. And a mom reached out to me. Her daughter was forced branched into, I think it was field artillery, which again was only on the list because everything sort of has to be on the list. And I said, you know, this is a game changer for her. This is a great opportunity to lead and to learn and to serve and to see this world and to really flex. You know, if you go to West Point, it's all those lessons about leadership and working with soldiers. Her platoon is out there waiting for her, right? And she'll go to these schools and and this will work out better. You know, that this is, and Amanda, maybe you're a little religious, maybe you're you're not, uh, but I I do think, uh, I know if I look at my own life, whatever plans I had, I can't remember what they were. I just sort of go with the plan that God has made for me, lighting the step one step before me at a time, which sounds really lame. I think I'm supposed to say, what's your five-year plan? You know, set your goals and achieve them. And it, it never quite works out that way. Everything seems a little accidental. Not that there isn't hard work that goes into getting a master's, but I didn't get a master's in something I knew existed till I was in my 30s. My PhD was like a quick decision, right? That it was, if you know, my, my mentor, my academic mentor and I were, oh, if you do one more year of coursework, you can have a PhD. And because it was a woman, she said, and you need a PhD because that MHA, you're never going to have 60 hours a week to spend at a hospital. So it was, none of it was, I, I never said, oh, I should get a PhD in, you know, public health and specialize in systems and policy. I never thought that it just happened. So I think for people who are out there living their life, thinking about serving, show up, work hard, and and see where you go and be open to new opportunities because it can be really fantastic. So yeah, that's what my advice would be. Great advice. And I also say that like if I had been in control of my life, it would have been so different. And I'm thankful that, you know, God opened doors and gave me opportunities to be where I am today because it was a much better plan <laughs> than what I was planning. I, I feel exactly the same as you do. So yeah, it's uh, it's that God's plan and just be open. So and I guess if you're atheist, I maybe it's be open to serendipity and chance. But I, I think for for those of us who who believe um, that it's it's God's plan and it'll work out the way it's intended and it'll be better and more interesting than whatever we could have imagined. 
And I'm glad you had the opportunity to stay home with your children. I think uh, we don't see a lot of that anymore. And it's, uh, you know, we are, I'm on the other end where my kids are grown now. And it's really a short time that you, in the course of, of our lives as women or as parents, it's a flash and then it's done. And it's nice when people can take that break. And I think that my own career is proof that you can step aside and then you can come back and do great things and contribute and, and earn money, right? Because when we work, the relationship is we can do things we're passionate about, but we'd like to be paid um, so that we can, you know, I don't know, pay for the house and the electricity and, you know, gas in the car or whatever. Uh, and, and, and you can, you can, if you, you can come back and do really great and interesting things. Um, it's not, it's not a one way street. Yeah. I mean, and especially with the internet and remote work, like I have the flexibility to set my schedule so that I get 99% of my work done while my kids are at school. Cause now they're both in school. They're already six and nine. And I'm like, what happened? Um, but they're in school and I, and I'm still not working full time, but I am able to work part time, bring in an income and and still be able to volunteer in their classroom and set my schedule as a business owner. And so that's been really great too. And I know that as they get older, they're going to not want me around as much. And I have that, you know, opportunity if I wanted to go back working full time, because there, you can do whatever you want. You just have to make a path and work really hard and wait for that open door. Wait for the door to open or for the, for the step to light before you. Um, but I think definitely the internet and distance learning distance working there's it's so much better than I think it was 20 25 years ago so I'm, I'm happy for young women or young men making the same decision uh, that they can do more that it's not really an on or off it's you can you can do both depending on your needs and the needs of your family for sure thank you so much for taking time out of your day I know you're super busy so I'm so I'm so glad we got to do this interview. And I can't wait for it to go live. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.